Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God and make him known. This is our commission. This is our command. This is our calling. This is our privilege. This is discipleship. Evening, everyone. It is so good to be here tonight as we are starting a new three-week series um, that is about making disciples, about the Great Commission, about our call, why we exist, why we are, for those of us who follow after Jesus, are still left on this earth, which is to go make disciples. Now, this is the call of every Christian throughout the centuries, and I bet if you are a Christian or if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you are probably pretty aware of that by now, right? Like that's not probably new wording or verbiage for you. The word disciple, as you probably also are aware, if that is the case, is is an ancient word that means student. Specifically, in an ancient Jewish context, is it was a student who sat under the teachings of a specific rabbi. And they would follow after the way of a rabbi for an extended length of time where they would seek to understand their teachings, where they would seek to do life on life with them, living in life with them, and even beginning to mirror the image of the practices that made up their life. The, that is the life of a disciple. And for those of us who are called to be followers, disciples of Jesus, the call to go make disciples is kind of a big deal. It was to Jesus and it has been throughout the last 2,000 years or so. Now, the word disciple or the word discipleship, there's a ton of good definitions for both of those words. There's also some probably some bad definitions for both of those words as well. But we have been seeking after clarity on how would we express discipleship in our local church context for Mosaic Church. And the way we have arrived is kind of what that video was saying, that we believe discipleship is the lifelong journey of knowing God and making him known. And there are three specific aspects to be discipled into that we believe are vitally important um, that we see throughout the, with, throughout the pages of scripture. And these are to embrace biblical story, to embrace Christian beliefs, and to embrace Christian practice in community. So it's the lifelong journey of knowing God and making him known. And if that is the idea of what discipleship is, then a disciple is a disciple of Jesus is one who has gone on this lifelong journey of knowing God and making him known. If you're a Christian, if you follow after Jesus, that is your job description to go on a lifelong journey of knowing God and making him known. Now, 
Let's be honest. There are a ton of different ways to be discipled in our world, in our culture, in our context. There are all kinds of different voices who are forming us in different ways. We are being discipled in a very real sense whenever we are scrolling through social media or watching anything on TV, going to the movies, going to the parks, all the different things. Like We are constantly being processing information and it is slightly shaping us and molding us continually because we are being discipled. So we can be disciples of social media influencers, politicians, ideologies, political parties, friend groups, social institutions, companies, all kinds of things. We could be a disciple of any of those because as members of the human race, we are all to some extent lifelong students. Constantly being shaped and molded. Now, Jesus' call is for us to go make disciples, but not disciples of pop culture trends, not disciples of a religious tradition, not disciples of a, a social or political ideology or a blending of any of those. His call is for us to make disciples of him. Now, that might not seem revolutionary to you right now, but I want you to ponder that for a sec, how big of a deal that is. We are called to be made into disciples of Jesus and to reproduce disciples of Jesus. This was the command that he gave to the early church, that great commission that we just saw in the video, that idea to go make disciples. He handed down to his original crew and was from there taken all around the ancient world, all the way to us today. The words that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago have reverberated through the pages of history to you and me. That's crazy. Now, here's the thing. We are called to be replication, mirror images of Jesus, just as those who discipled us were and discipled and discipled all the way back to Jesus himself. But here's the thing. What happens if you are absolutely convinced of the call to go make disciples, to go after this epic, epic quest of making disciples, yet you aren't aware of how to truly be a disciple yourself just yet? Truth be told, that was me. When I first came to know Jesus when I was 18 years old, I was raised in the church, but to be honest, I had to unlearn a ton of what I learned about Jesus before hand, a lot of what I learned about the Bible beforehand because of me coming to faith in Jesus. And I actually came to Christ after reading a book and there wasn't anyone else around me that was kind of guiding me or steering me. Now I had some friends and I started trying to find places to connected friend groups to get plugged into, but I was struggling at knowing, all right, I realize I'm called to go make disciples, but I didn't know where to be formed in community and to being a disciple myself. And this was my story when I first came here, like whatever, eight years ago to Mosaic at WDW. And that idea of being discipled, of walking through life with other individuals who are following after Jesus and learning how to follow after him. See, I didn't know my rabbi very well yet. I had much to learn about what it truly meant to understand his teachings, to understand his story, to live in his way. And truth be told, I still have a long way to go. But what's crazy is that for all of the personal relationship talk with Jesus that we talk about with over the last like 20 years or so, so in the Christian 
subculture, we always talk about the idea of having a personal relationship with Jesus. We rarely take the time to define what type of relationship are we actually called to have. We kind of end it at friendship. Like he's supposed to be just our bro that we're hanging out with or whatever. But we don't realize that this is meant to be a multifaceted relationship. It's supposed to be the relationship between a king and his royal subjects. The relationship between an older brother and his younger siblings. A relationship between a rescuer and those who have been saved. But out of all of the many types of distinctions of relationship that we are in with Jesus, the most cited one that Jesus offers is between a student and a teacher, a disciple, and a rabbi. And for those of you who call yourselves Christian, is that the way that you view your relationship with Jesus? Do you see him in in light of all of those realities, but specifically for tonight, do you view Jesus as your teacher? If, I, if you were to look at the, the spectrum of your schedule, do you, does Jesus tend to be your teacher or is it other influences? Where is your discipleship coming from? Now, this is why I'm so excited about this series we're going into over the next couple, three weeks about discipleship. Because as we have continued to evolve our discipleship ministry here at Mosaic at WW, we have always had this desire, this dream, and this reality of making disciples who make disciples. Like that has always been the goal and the dream and the desire that we are constantly making disciples who go and reproduce and make more disciples. But here's the thing. We are called to make disciples as we ourselves are being made into disciples. So that's an important part that we have to start in on. See, there's no outgrowing being a disciple of Jesus. Christians are meant to be lifelong students submitting in humility to Jesus. We don't graduate discipleship training with Jesus. It's part of the entire journey. And the more we learn the way of Jesus, his teachings and his story, the more our only reasonable response is humility. It's humble learning. Anything else is silly and honestly illogical. Because when you think you have mastered the teachings of the creator of the cosmos, you you aren't playing in the realm of logic, right? So we have to realize that we are all on a journey. Whether you are sitting here and you've been following Jesus for 75 years or for seven minutes, all of us are on a lifelong journey with Jesus. We are called to focus as a community, though, on what does this look like? What does this look like in our local church context? Now, when I, as I was unpacking kind of that definition for discipleship, it's important to note that while there's so many great definitions, this is the definition that we are going by, not to criticize what, the way other churches might do discipleship. It's not about that at all. It's not to say that we figured out a silver bullet, that we alone figured out something that Jesus has been holding on to for 2,000 years and waited until our context today until we could live this out perfectly. Now, it's not about that at all. It's because we are called to focus on asking the question for our local context. So for us, these three aspects of discipleship are the ones that we see throughout the pages of Scripture and been led to by the Spirit that we would see as absolutely vital for us to grow in as disciples of Jesus. Biblical story, Christian beliefs, Christian practice. Now you're going to hear about each of those over, the, over these three weeks, um, starting, starting tonight, but moving on into the years to come. 
Now, over the course of these three weeks, we're not going to go into the depth of each of these. That's what you're going to engage in as you go to different discipleship spaces, such as our Thursday night Bible studies, which y'all should go to. They're pretty awesome. Um, But we are instead tonight are going to be focusing on one question and one question only. Why? Why does this matter? Why does it matter to understand and to embrace the biblical story of the scriptures? So that's our question for tonight. And if you're a note taker, go ahead and write that down. Why does biblical story matter? The short answer, as the last song we sang says, Lord, I wander. I wander because we wander. In other words, because we are a forgetful people. We are a forgetful people, not just like those of us who are in this room right now. I don't know that much about all of us to be able to say that conclusively, except to say that the entire human race has historically over the, over the millennia of the past have proven to be very, very, very good at one thing, forgetfulness. We are super forgetful, especially those of us who actually know the living God. We are a forgetful people. We forget what God has done and what he is doing. We forget his character. We forget what he has done with us, for us, in us. We are pretty forgetful. Now, I was thinking about that in the light of the scriptures. And there was a story in the book of Joshua that I was reminded of as I was thinking over this one. It comes from Joshua chapter four. If you happen to have a Bible, we also always have Bibles in the very back. Um, feel free to take one if you'd like. If you do have a beautiful blue, we're on page 200. And we're gonna hang out there for a few minutes. Now, we are a forgetful people. Now, this story is in the early days of the people of Israel. Now, for 40 years, Moses had carried the people of Israel through the wilderness with all their forgetfulness, through all their grumblings, with all their distrust of God and who he is and what he was up to. Now, eventually, Moses and the entire older generation end up passing away, except for two guys, one named Caleb, the other guy named Joshua. Now, Joshua is now called to lead the Israelites out of this wilderness period into the promised land. The only problem is just like back in Moses' day, he had that Red Sea that stood in the way between the people of Israel and freedom from their Egyptian captors who were right on their tail with some pretty nasty looking chariots. And then God parts the Red Sea and they walk across. Well, now there's another large body of water. This time it's the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is no mild river. And unless Joshua is able to somehow lead the people across the Jordan River, their journey is going to be very inconvenient and probably pretty wet as well. So in Joshua chapter three, starting in verse seven, we find um, the Lord's command to Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel so that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So right there, he's already expressing. He's like, I want the people to know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. So I'm gonna do something pretty epic right about now. So he goes in and he says, and as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Now that sounds pretty weird. Um, 
his, his epic plan for getting them across is that the priests are going to go get their feet wet. Like that doesn't exactly like correlate to a logical conclusion that you would naturally go to. So he begins to unpack what's going to happen. That as they go, as the priests put their feet in the water, the flow of this rapid river is going to block up downstream and it's going to come up as a huge heap. And then you guys are going to be able to walk across on dry ground. But unlike the, the parting of the Red Sea for Moses, it's going to start with the priests getting their feet wet, going in in faith. And we discover what happens, verse 14. And so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water... Now, and here's some context. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. So, so in other words, it's a pretty big river. It's right in the middle of harvest time. The water is pretty high. So the water is coming down from above and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zareth and, and those flowing toward the sea of, of the Arabah, the salt sea were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. That's pretty crazy, right? Like, like let's think about that for a second. This is written in terms of historical narrative. Like this actually happened. So this idea that they were supposed to put their feet in the water, get their feet kind of wet, and then all of a sudden, right after that, all the way back at a far off distance, a heap of water rises. That's pretty memorable, right? If you're there for that, you're like, this is going down in top five moments of your life, I'd imagine. Now, two side notes. One, God clearly wants humanity's active, faith-filled participation. The priests were supposed to get their feet wet. They're supposed to put their feet in the water. Sounds a little damp, but they were doing that out of faith. Now, is it because the priests were so awesome? No. It's because God is so awesome. God's the one who does the whole heap of river downstream business. That's God. But he desires for humanity's active, faith-filled participation in the story. Now, Joshua wants to ensure, though, that they remember these realities for generations to come. So he ends up commanding them to do two things. First, he commands them when they cross over to take a big stone from the Jordan River and where each of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel slept that night, they should put a stone right where their, their general tribe slept. Okay? So there would be 12 big stones all around in this area. And then Joshua himself is going to take 12 more big stones and pile them on top of each other in the midst of the Jordan. Why? Why? Does God need a pile of rocks to feel awesome about himself? See, God doesn't need a pile of rocks, but we do. Chapter four, verse 21 
And here's what Joshua says to the people of Israel. When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over it as the Lord your God did did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know what? That the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. See, we are a forgetful people. God isn't. God is the creator of atoms. He does, he's not easily impressed by a pile of rocks, Right? but we need that. We forget what God has done for us. That last song, Come Thou Fount, that we were saying before, in it, it says, here I raise my Ebenezer. Now that word Ebenezer is the Hebrew word that is used here. It is a pile of rocks. In other words, the the literal translation is a stone of remembrance. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here I raise a stone of remembrance to remember who you are and what you have done. This is what we need so desperately. This is what the people of Israel needed back then because we are forgetful people. We forget what God has done for us and we alter the stories of our lives to make us to be the hero. We forget his true character and we substitute it for what is comfortable and desirable in our own eyes. So we need things like pile of rocks. We need things like holidays. We need things like baptism and communion to be visual reminders of who God is and what he has done for us. Now let's imagine for a second that all of us, we went on a field trip back to ancient Israel. Like we, we go back a, um, a few 4,000 years and we are standing at the bank of the Jordan River and we had no idea of what these stones were. Would your natural inclination be to look at a, a 12 stone stacked on top of each other and go, oh, that's about God, the God of the Jews. Like that totally makes sense to me. I mean, probably not, right? Like you, that's probably not where your mind immediately would go because there was no inscription. There's nothing to tell us why, what it matters, what this is for. See, this is why the biblical story matters so much and why each of us who are disciples of Jesus are called to grow as learners of the biblical story because we live in a world of evidence of God's goodness, of his faithfulness, of his beauty, of his creativity, of his salvation, and of his hope. Uh, We call this God's common grace. God's common grace is his goodness that is accessible to all of humanity, whether you know who he is or not. These are just things that are evident like a pile of rocks without an inscription. It's you, you discover God's common grace in the beauty of a sunset, in the taste of a delicious meal, in a meaningful conversation with a friend. These are things that you don't need to know Jesus or know who God is to experience it. But you also don't have the inscription about who it's from. But we can attribute these things instead to simply natural causes or human creativity or our our human connection. Instead of the master scientist, the master artisan that is behind all of the beauty and wonder of creation. But in the biblical story, we discover something different, a different type of grace. Referred to as the special grace of God, whose love, passion, justice, might are all on display. We discover stories of what God has done and discover the character of who he is. If you want to know what is God like, 
It's in the scriptures. If you want to know what he has done, it's in the scriptures. We discover who he is and what he has done. Now, um, I love escape rooms. I love a good escape room, guys. Um, it's fun. It's so much fun. Uh, like, yeah, it's just like, it's like my version of the Magic Kingdom if I'm not at the Magic Kingdom, right? Okay, so I just love going in with like a diverse group of friends, all smart in their own unique ways, right? You ever been in an escape room like that? And like everyone like thinks about things a little bit different. So they all have different strengths that they kind of bring to the table of said escape room. Now, it doesn't matter how, how awesome and smart everyone in the escape room is, at least the ones I've been in, there is usually a time where for a period of a few minutes in an escape room where no one is figuring out anything. And you're like, oh no, I'm like done. I don't know. Like, are we gonna like waste away the next 40 minutes of time? I have no idea. And all of a sudden you like go into panic mode and you start like making up clues that are clearly not clues at all. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like, so you like run back all the way to the first room and you like are taking the puzzle pieces that were on the wall and you're like going, oh, there's a vowel and a consonant. And you're like, no, it's just a squiggly line. You're like, you're like trying to figure things out. You get a black light out and you're like trying to figure it out. And you're like, how am I getting out of it, getting the next clue? Because you're desperate. So you start kind of making stuff up. But then finally, every once in a while, the game master is benevolent and comes on the intercom and says, look on the book that's on the table in front of you. And it's right there on the cover. Like the answer was right there all along. You're like, oh, oh, oh. And then you're like, I would have figured it out next. Like that's where I was going next for sure. I was going to the most obvious conclusion next. See, we live this way. We try to figure out life on our own terms. We try to answer life's greatest questions our own way. We listen to voices on our phones right as we walk past the voice of God personally revealed to us in the pages of the scriptures. Now, I made a big assumption there in calling it God's personal voice. Because if it's not, if it is not the personal voice of God, if it is not authoritative and perfect, if it is not those things, then it's just a bunch of ancient texts. Maybe there's some good stuff in it, maybe not. But if it is, if it is God's personal voice revealed to us. If it is authoritative, then the script gets thrown right out the window. See, this is why we talk so much as a church about why the scriptures are authoritative over our lives, or at least they're meant to be. Not because no other voice can have any authority over our life. I mean, there are experts in different fields of studies. There are pastors, teachers, social media influencers, and many of them might even say things that are good or helpful. It's just that nothing I can say as a pastor or what anyone else could possibly say can hold the weight of authority of the voice of God in the scriptures. Nothing. You might've heard this said from the stage here from time to time, but if, if anything I ever say contradicts what's in the scriptures, come and talk to me. Because this wins over me every time. This wins over every teacher every time. At least it's supposed to. See, there can be other types of authoritative voices for sure. Those are good and helpful. A secondary authority. But in the scriptures, we discover ultimate authority. 
See, embracing being a learner of the biblical story is not something that you graduate from. It's something that we are meant to live our lives saturated in. In Psalm 145, uh, King David, he wrote this beautiful psalm that I wanted to share with you guys really quick. Here's what he writes. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Remember, this is, the, this is King David. Um, this is the King, of Dave, King David in the midst of the height of his monarchy. He is doing pretty well. He is well thought of and well respected across the ancient world. And yet he is calling God, my God and King, and I will bless your name forever and ever ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. So notice what he says he's going to meditate on. He says he will meditate on two things, on the glorious splendor of your majesty who God is, and on your wondrous works, what God has done. He will meditate. When we meditate on something, it is to go over and to be reminded of something time and time and time again, to remember some things about something. And for him, he is meditating on who God is and what God has done. Now, this points us to the truth that the journey of disciple is a lifelong one. This is King David. He's a guy who's described after, a man after God's own heart. And yet he is a forgetful person as well. In fact, his story bears that out. When he forgets God's, of who God is and what God has done, his life falls apart. The journey of a disciple is a lifelong one. And he goes on in verse six to say it this way. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. See, as we learn who God is and what he has done from others and from the scriptures, we take that and we pass it on. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. Again, they shall speak of what God has done and what does he say? And I will declare your greatness, who you are. See, just as the Israelites were called to remind the next generation of why there was a pile of rocks in the middle of the Jordan River, we are called to help others to know who God is and what he has done within the pages of the scriptures. Now, for the Jewish people, they believed that within the scriptures, they would encounter God's character and they would discover his works, which was true. But here's the kicker for us on this side of the cross. We are inheritors of even more. See, we are introduced to, the, to God in the flesh, to the voice of God made man, Jesus. See, Jesus is the one that all of the scriptures are pointing to all along. Jesus is the true and better See, in Jesus, we discover the fullness of God's image. We witness God's character as Jesus interacts with love, humility, kindness, and power with others. We witness God's ultimate work as Jesus took our sin, our brokenness on himself on the cross for the sake of love. And he ushers us into new life in his kingdom. How could this not transform the way that we read the scriptures? which is exactly what Jesus himself seemed to think. In fact, if you go to Luke chapter 24, this is occurring right after Jesus' resurrection and he is about, he's giving his 
followers um, some last words of instruction and discover what he seemed to tell, he seemed to think about the scriptures. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, which is a majority of the rest of the Old Testament of the Bible, and the law of of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So in essence, he was showing them how everything within the Old Testament was ultimately leading us to him. But then he keeps going and it says, then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. Imagine Jesus calls you to follow after him. And for three years, you're doing life with Jesus. You're, you're camping out under the stars with Jesus and his crew. You're eating dinner with Jesus. You're, you're at the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like you are right there interacting. When you have a question about the Bible, you can go to the guy who spirit inspired the Bible, right? Like, like that you have access to the creator of the cosmos. That's kind of a big deal, right? But now finally, It says, he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. Finally, for the first time, they had a shot at understanding what it was really about all along. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the grave. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things things. So he's calling them. He opens up their mind to understand the scriptures and then says, now go and tell others about it. The way that he, um, the way in the book of Matthew, it's recorded. He says to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I have commanded you. He opens up their understanding of the scriptures. He has taught them what it looks like to live in the way of himself. And see, as we engage in the biblical story, we actually discover more of Jesus. We discover his character, his life, his love, the entirety of it. This is our opportunity to take what we have learned. As we are being discipled, we take what we have learned and we help others to understand it as well. We go make disciples. And see, we are called to know God and to make him known. We do this as we grow as disciples of Jesus and we make disciples of Jesus. This is where the great command of Jesus, which is to love God and to love people, meets the great call of Jesus to go make disciples and to teach all that I've commanded you. This is your command. It's your call. Literally, if you're wondering what you're supposed to do with your life, go make disciples. It's that easy. Now, what does that mean beyond that? I don't know. (laughs) But I do know that you are called to go make disciples if you follow after Jesus. But before that, you are called to be made into being a disciple. And as you are making disciples, you continue to be formed into a disciple. And you'll stop doing that when you die. But up until then, journey of discipleship, y'all, it's that good, it's that simple, and it's that brilliant and breathtaking. And within the biblical story, we find the nourishment, we find the bread of life, we discover it, we discover who Jesus is and what he has done. This is your command, this is your call to know God, to make him known. Now, the reality is that there are so many reasons to embrace the biblical story, both why it's vital for your relationship with Jesus and why it's, re- 
vital for your life as a whole. Whether it's to help you understand the context of what you are reading in the Bible and also able to help understand when somebody is teaching and how they're teaching and if what they're teaching is correct, whether it's to help you gain a biblical worldview as well as call out false worldviews in our world, whether it's to help you understand yourself better, all of those are pretty good, solid reasons to engage in the biblical story within the scriptures. But all of those are secondary reasons when it comes to the primary reason of knowing who God is and what he has done. Because you and me, we are forgetful people. We need that reminder. We don't graduate from that. We need the reminder, which is why we need to continue to intake a diet of the scriptures so that we would be drawn to him to know God and to make him known. Now, if you're curious, how do I practically get started in understanding and growing and embracing the biblical story, there's a ton of ways to do that. But a very beautiful and practical way is our Thursday night Bible studies. That in our Thursday night Bible studies, you will do life in community. You will discover the lives of others and their interactions. You can come with your doubts and your questions. You're like, I believe none of the Bible. Come, it'll be an awesome place and you won't be judged there. Like, please, like this is a safe place to come and to discover the biblical story and, and test it for yourself. See what's in it. See who this Jesus is because I promise he's worth it. So that's your opportunity. That's our challenge. Now, I think back to when I first came to know Jesus and how insane it was to know his story and to be able to share it with others. And I remember the passion that was in my heart then, the passion to go make disciples, the passion to tell people about what God has done and who he was in me. And I just imagine what would happen if that same passion took over my heart again. Maybe you're with me on that. I would love to see what happens if that passion captivates your heart again. I would love to see what happens if that heart captivates our community's heart. That we would grow as learners of the biblical story, not just to become smarter or to know more stuff, not to think that we're so good or we become biblical experts, but to know who God is and to know what he has done for us so that in the middle of our forgetfulness, we would be reminded of what is ultimately true and good. Now that would be a story we're sharing. I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band to come on up. And as, and as they do come up, I would invite you to just take a second, just bow your head in prayer. And we're just gonna take a moment to pray over this as we begin this discipleship series. I don't know what your day has been like. I don't know what your last week was like. It's a crazy, crazy season of life right now in our world, especially in our local context. So to be reminded of who God is and what he has done, that is something that I need. I'm imagining something you need as well. So let's pray. Father, I pray over my family and friends here tonight. Lord, we need you. We need you more than we know. We need to understand who you are and what you have done. We need to discover more of your passion for people. God, God, we need your story because we are forgetful. I probably the most. I forget your goodness. I forget your faithfulness. 
I default to doing things in my own power and my own strength. Lord, forgive me. I want to fix everything. I want to fix myself, others, the world around me. Lord, I want to do it my way. So Lord, help me to be reminded of who you are and what you have done so that I would submit and obey to your way. So Lord, I pray that for all of us, that that would be all of our hearts cry tonight to you, that we would submit our lives and our hearts to who you are and what you have done. Yes, Lord, we need you. You are good, you're kind, you're faithful. Thank you for the story of the scriptures, that in it we discover you. I pray that we'd be transformed as we do that, as we engage and embrace your biblical story. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.